for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, those four Sundays will be Advent Sundays, and those will be uh, times where we reflect specifically on the coming of the Lord, both, both in the past and in the future, because we recognize that we are between the comings, that we are people who are waiting for the the coming of Jesus Christ who will raise us from the dead. He will give us eternal life realized. He will consummate all things. Yet we look back historically to the truthfulness of the prophecies of the Old Testament. That as we even are in the Old Testament now, we recognize that the Old Testament is about Christ and it is anticipating Christ. And so in Luke 24, for example, Jesus will say, he will speak to the disciples uh, there walking along the road uh, of all the things that are said of him in the Old Testament. He, he's not giving them, I think, a full disclosure of every little bit, but he is giving them a broad understanding of what is in the Old Testament about him. And so when Christ is born, the fulfillment of God's promises comes. And that's why we read in the New Testament that in Christ, all of God's promises are yes. And there is no better time to celebrate that than at Christmas. And so the hope is that Despite the busyness of this next month, we, through this time of Advent, will be able to orient ourselves to Christ, and we will be able to focus as a church on that. And that's why next Sunday we will begin looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. So we're going to step away from Genesis. Uh, I hope some of you maybe are at least slightly bummed out about that, but maybe, maybe not. We're going to step away from Genesis, from the Old Testament, and we're going to go to this glorious mountain peak passage of the Bible, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, which begins with, in the beginning was the Word. And then that last chunk there, verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And the hope is that we'll end there uh, this Sunday before Christmas. And we will, of course, have a Christmas Eve service but there will be more of that to come. So today we return to Genesis 16. Go ahead and turn there, if you will. Genesis 16. I want to thank Mark for preaching last week, for reminding all of us of the seriousness of sin. Sin is a real thing, and sin is something that is deep in our hearts, and it has serious consequences and effects. So I thank Mark for reminding us of that. And also, because you can't just be reminded of that, also reminding us of the reality of God's grace and mercy. Last week we saw that David needed God's grace and mercy. And then two weeks ago we saw that Abram needed God's grace and mercy. So yes, even David and Abram were sinners. Saved by grace. There probably are not, I mean, maybe I, I could be argue, uh, this, I could be convinced otherwise on this, but there probably are not two more important figures in the Old Testament, really, than Abraham and David. Because Abraham really marks the beginning of God's chosen people, the, the people whom God will reveal himself to. He'll, he'll reveal himself to them. He'll give them his oracles, as Paul says in Romans, and he will give them the law, the covenants, all of that. He'll make himself known among them. He'll be worshipped among them. And, of course, we know Abraham's seed is the Christ. And then we get to David, and David is, is the golden age of this people, this people known as Israel, the descendants of Jacob, who is 
the grandson of Abraham. And, and we see with David the high point in the life of this nation, but we also see in David the most explicit type of Christ. David is a Christ. He's an anointed one. He's the king. And his descendant, God tells him, will be the eternal king who will reign on his throne forever. So really, there aren't two more important people in the Old Testament. We all love Joseph, and we all love Daniel, and and Noah, and other folks. But these two, Abraham and David, really rise up to the surface. And here we've seen, just in the last two weeks, that these two men, even these two men, were, in many ways, flawed. They were sinful men. They needed a savior. And that reminds us that every biblical hero, every faithful Christian you know or have read about, needs God's mercy. We all have people we look up to. You probably have some Christians maybe in your family or people who led you to the Lord or people even within this church or people just in your history, in your past, or maybe biographies that you have read or key people throughout church history, or maybe it is, in fact, biblical characters like Paul or like Abraham, David, other people like that, that you look to and these people become larger than life. But we are always reminded that they are people in need of mercy just like us. In fact, there will only be one type of person in heaven. Think about that for a second. Only one type of person in heaven, or I should say in the new heaven and new earth. Those who are recipients of God's grace and mercy. That's it. And in fact, when we are all gathered in heaven, that will be the one clear, eternal reality. That will be the one thing that's kind of a rallying point for all of God's people. The the New Testament is clear that there there will be rewards in heaven. And it's difficult to understand what exactly that means and what that looks like. Theologians have tried to explore that. But, But regardless of what we make of that, what we know to be true is that in heaven, every Christian will exult in God's mercy. Every person there, every person present will be, as it were, stamped with the mercy of God. There's a couple of verses I want to give you to this effect. Romans 11:32. This is a really important chapter. Romans 11, if Romans 8 gets to the, the, the top of the mountain, if, if Paul in Romans is climbing a mountain and he gets to the top as when he's describing God's salvation uh, coming to the, to the individual Christian, Romans 8 is kind of the high point there. But Romans 9 to 11 is very significant for helping us to understand God's redemptive purposes throughout history. How God has saved Jew and Gentile and what's going on with a a, a Jewish nation who rejects its Messiah and this breaking out of salvation to the Gentiles. And some Jews embrace Christ. Most do not. What will come of the Jewish people? What will come of ethnic Israel? And how do these Gentile converts and these Jewish converts and unbelieving Israel all come together? There's a lot of debate on those questions. But what I want you to see is that at the end of that chapter, at the end of that discussion, this is what Paul says about God's intentions in redemption. Romans eleven thirty two, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy 
on all. That's God's intention. That is God's redemptive purpose is that everyone in heaven will be one who has been shown mercy. Let me give you one more verse. It's really important. Ephesians 2, 7. You remember the, that passage, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, which is one of the most glorious descriptions of how we've been saved. And in that passage, we find in verse 7, so that, this is God's reason for saving you, God's reason for saving us here this morning, so that in the coming ages, there are ages coming, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are trophies, those who are saved, trophies of God's mercy into eternity. So that's why God's doing what he's doing. So everyone there, Abram, David, you and I, we will be focused on this mercy brought to us through Jesus. In the midst of all of Abram's faith, obedience, and strength of character, which we've seen, we've said a lot about this character, Abram. We've seen a lot of good things, a lot of positive qualities, a lot of commendable attributes. But in the midst of all of this, twice now, we have seen his sinful scheming, his feeble faith, and his foolish faltering. First, there was chapter 12. Remember at the end, of chapter 12, we saw a time of crisis. There was famine in the land of Canaan. And what happened? Instead of seeking and trusting God, we saw Abram relying on a reckless lie. He says to Sarah, hey, I got a plan here. Let's say you are my sister, not my wife. You're just my sister. And we'll go into the land and they'll see how beautiful you are. And they won't kill me because if I'm your husband, they're going to kill me because you're so attractive that all of these Egyptian men are going to want to have you as their own, and they will kill me. So he comes up with this plan, this reckless plan to ensure his own safety. Yes, he believed in the fulfillment of God's promises in general. He was a man of faith at that point. He had just left his homeland. I mean, we can't question the fact that Abram is a believer. God had told him to leave his homeland and go to a to an A place that God wouldn't even tell him where it was. And he left. He went. So he's a believer. But in the particulars, he was doing his own thing. He was living according to the flesh. He was walking in the way of the world. He was trusting in his own schemes and his own plans. So that was chapter 12. And then, secondly, we come to chapter 16. With the Hagar ordeal, which is where we pick up. Today, So if you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading all of chapter 16. Just to give you a little bit of a a background, we covered the first six verses two weeks ago. And today we're going to cover verses 7 to 16. But so that you have the whole story in mind, which is very important here, I'm going to read all of these verses. So verses 1 to 16. This is the Word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. 
And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And then here's what we're going to look at today, verses 7 to 16. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. Verse 12, He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord, ask for his blessing on this time in his word. So it's a strange story. Uh, and maybe you're wondering what in the world can we even begin to get out of this. But we pray that God would use his word this morning to change us, to speak to us. And sometimes what's amazing, I'll say this, is it's amazing when you read Christian biographies and you hear what passages were, were influential in the converting of, of certain key people throughout Christian history. Sometimes it, it's totally unexpected. I mean, it's not, uh, very often it's not a John 3.16 verse. It's really some, what we would consider to be some kind of random verse that God uses to do a powerful work. And so let's pray this morning. God would use even this, the story of Hagar, to change us, maybe even to convert some of us here this morning, from not knowing him to knowing him and being forgiven of our sins. Let's pray. Father, we worship you as our great God. You are worthy of all praise, for you have created us in your own image. You've given us an earth prepared for us, an earth that we have broken Lives that we have, with our own sin, broken. Death and destruction that we bring to our own lives and our own families and our own churches 
our own communities, our own nation, our world broken. And Father, you, in the midst of all of this, have demonstrated your kindness, your mercy, your pity, your unmerited favor, your grace on us, Father. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you sent your own son. You gave your own son, just as you will tell Abram in chapter 22, Abraham, chapter 22, to sacrifice his only son. You sacrifice your only son that we might become adopted sons through him. Father, this morning we just worship you for that. We know you are a kind God. You are a loving God. You are patient with your children, far more patient than we could ever be with our own children. Father, would you be patient with us in our sinfulness, in our folly? God, would you forgive us, we pray. Would you be merciful to us? We represent this morning many different struggles, many different temptations, many different trials. And we come to you collectively this morning, God, not in pretense, not in ceremony, but in truth. We come to you, our God, and we pray that you would meet us here this morning as you already have through the singing of your word back to you, through praying to you. And now through your word, God, we pray that you would be near to us, that you would draw us nearer to you, that we would know you more deeply because we've been here today. We pray that your word would stick us where it needs to this morning, that we would listen. Father, we know that there are many things competing for our attention this morning. We recognize that our minds are are feeble and weak and that we struggle to pay attention. We ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you would, please look over at your bulletin. And you'll see the title for this two-part sermon. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started it, as I said. And it's entitled, I've entitled it, Offspring for Abram? This is the second part. And the reason I've entitled it Offspring for Abram is because you very much get the uh, this, there's a strange effect that this chapter has on the reader. The, the person who's been following the story up to this point, there's a strange effect because in, that there's been so much tension waiting for an offspring for Abram. And in the previous chapter, chapter 15, God comes to him and tells him very explicitly and clearly, you're going to have an offspring, not you know, an adopted offspring, but you're going to have someone from your own body. You're actually going to have a child biologically, naturally. And then we get this chapter, and it's really strange because we've got this offspring of Abram. Yes, it's true. This is, this is, in fact, an offspring of Abram, but it's not at all what God has been talking about up to this point. And so there's a, a way we answer this question that's a yes, and then there's a way we answer this question that is a no. Yes, an offspring for Abram. No, this is not the promised offspring for Abram. So as I said before last time, we covered verses 1 to 6. And we looked at the first two points. You'll see those there. The plan concocted and the problem created. The plan, Sarai says, hey, uh, let me give you my Egyptian servant. 
and you can basically have, I will have children through her. She's my servant. She's just mere property. So here, you just have, you, you mate with her and she has a child and it'll be your child and my child through her. She's just a, a baby making machine, really. So let's do that. That's the plan. And of course, we saw Abram's like, okay, sure. He just goes right along with it. What's the problem here? Or what's, what's, the, what's the issue with this plan? Well, they're acting independently of God. They're not seeking him. They're opposing God's design for marriage. God, from the very beginning, intended marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. Polygamy is introduced by human sinfulness. The first instance of polygamy we get is with Lamech. This, this evil, vengeful, murderous man at the very beginning in the line of Cain. That's the first instance we get in the Bible of polygamy. Now we already see it's beginning to seep into the people of God. And by the time you get to David and Solomon, you're going to have all these wives, even Solomon having a harem. All of these women in his palace. What? These are the people of God. But the world is powerful. So God's intention for marriage is, marriage is being opposed. Abram has this Adam-like passivity. He listens to his wife. His wife says, here, let's do this. He's like, okay, just like Adam. Hey, take, take a bite of this. Okay, sure, Eve. Let's do that. Just passive. Mistreatment of another human being. Hagar is just kind of caught in the middle of all this craziness. She's not even cared about as a person made in God's image. She's just, uh, like I said before, just a producer of children. Nothing more. Tossed back and forth. Sarai tosses her over like a ball. As I said a couple weeks ago. Tosses her over like a ball to Abram. Abram tosses her right back to Sarai. She's just an object. Not a human being. We see acting according to the flesh rather than the promise. As Galatians 4 will pick up on as Paul says. At the end we see worldliness. You know, one of the things I mentioned a couple weeks ago is that this is not something particularly strange in that time period. What Sarai is doing is normal practice. This is normal behavior. If you were a godless Egyptian or a godless Mesopotamian or a godless Canaanite, but not if you are in the line of Shem and you know the Lord. It's just worldliness, doing what everyone else around them is doing. So what is the problem created? We had the plan concocted, then we had the problem created. The problem is on every level. We have relationships fractured. The peace in this household is destroyed. All of these relational dynamics coming to light negatively. We have Hagar at the end being mistreated by Sarai and running away, fleeing. With, with this, this baby, this offspring of Abram in her womb, and she's out of there. She's gone. And that's where we pick up in verse 7. So this time we're going to look at 7 to 16. And the, the point that I have here for this is the provider confessed. As with chapter 12, in the very place where we see human faithlessness, we see divine faithfulness. Remember back in chapter 12, we saw Abram and Sarai with this plan, doing all of this foolishness. And then what did God do? God brought this affliction on the house of Pharaoh. When Pharaoh took Sarai into his, into his palace to be his wife, what did God do? God showed up and he afflicted the household of Pharaoh. We see God, even in the midst of Abram's faithlessness, bringing Abram and Sarai out 
unharmed with all of this wealth. So yes, human faithlessness and sinfulness and weakness and stumbling and frailty, God's faithfulness abounding over that. That's, that's the message of Romans 5. When you come to Romans 5, you see human sin. Can grace abound over human sin? Absolutely. There's not one single sin that can outmatch God's grace. Not a single sinner with his sin can outmatch a loving, gracious, merciful God. We see that again here with the provider confessed in these verses. So let me give you three words to guide us. You don't have this as the outline because you have the other outline. But let me give you the outline within the outline. Three words to help guide us through verses 7 to 16. If you want to write these down. The meeting, the message, and the memorial. Very very short there, very quick. The meeting, the message, and the memorial to help us walk through these verses. So let's look first at the meeting. Look at verses 7 to 8 with me. Verses 7 to 8. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So here we have Hagar, Sarai's runaway servant. She is in the middle of nowhere. She is in the wilderness, all alone, without help, near the border of Egypt, probably headed back to her homeland. But with what prospects? I mean, it's not like she was taken from Egypt. And if she could just get across the border... She could throw her hands up and say, I'm back. Like someone running to the embassy in the middle of a civil war. If I could just just get across the door, the threshold, if I could just get through the gate, I'll be safe. I'll be sound. I'll be home. No, she was a slave there given over as property to Sarai. She has no prospects. She's in the middle of nowhere alone with no prospects. I think all of us could feel some sympathy for this person. Hagar. She is physically and emotionally in the wilderness. And in terms of her life and future, she has nothing at all. Nothing. But she is not alone. That's the incredible thing about this story that we come to here is who is Hagar? She's not one of those figures we've traced from the beginning. She's almost some kind of random figure. And here we see she's not alone. Someone comes to her. Someone meets her on the way. And he is called the angel of the Lord. A fascinating character appearing in the Old Testament. Who is he? Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, as you would expect, there, are, there is much debate over who this figure is. And we don't really have a clear Answer, we don't have a verse that says, by the way, let me explain to you uh, very clearly who the angel of the Lord is and kind of unpack that for us. We just have his mere presence and we have him appearing throughout and doing certain things and saying certain things. So we have to extract from that who this person is. 
Well, at first we might say, oh, well, that's easy. It's an angel whom God sends to speak to Hagar. I mean, it says angel. It's an angel. Like the angel sent to Daniel or to Mary. We see angels all throughout the Bible coming. God sends them. So it's just just an angel. But when we look a little more closely at this figure who's, who's introduced here, by the way. This is, this is, isn't that neat, though, by the way, as you go through Genesis, you get all these introductions. We've been introduced to the idea of covenant. We've been introduced to this idea of, of faith. We've been introduced to uh, here, this character, the angel of the Lord. been introduced to marriage, all kinds of different things. But here we have the angel of the Lord. This is not merely an angel or a group of angels. It is this unique character known as the angel of Yahweh, also referred to as the angel of God. He's referred to in both ways throughout the Old Testament. More than a mere messenger, this angel is depicted as God himself. This is something that has been probably observed by most of you as you've read through the Bible. You've thought, who is this? Maybe you've done a read through the Bible in a year or 90 days. There's a little book, and I recommend this. This is it's really neat to do this. You get such a, 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 a quick and good snapshot of the storyline of the Bible. You read through the Bible in 90 days, and you'll see as you read through Judges, you, you'll see constantly this, this figure, the angel of the Lord, appearing. And, and you know there's something unique about him as you read But the best example to show us the identification between the angel and God himself is Exodus 3, 2, the the burning bush. So in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And then you get a a few words later in verse 4, it says this, When the Lord, it's Yahweh, the, the holy name of God, the revealed name of God, associated with the to-be verb, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. In other words, you get a character introduced, the angel of the Lord, and then immediately the text puts the Lord there in that same position. The angel of the Lord appears to him, and who's speaking? The Lord. It's God who is speaking to him. Sometimes the angel of the Lord just kind of appears and then sits down and lets God talk. Seems to be one and they seem to be one and the same. The angel of the Lord is the Lord. Genesis 31, 11. Then the angel, this is Jacob recounting what happened to him. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream. And then he goes on in verse 13. This is the message of the angel of God to Jacob. I am the God of Bethel. So there, the angel of God is God. There is a they, they are one and the same, but they seem to be distinct as well. So what are we to make of this? Well, we also see it here in our verse, verse 13, referring to the angel of the Lord. It says here in verse 13, in our chapter, chapter 16, verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So the angel of the Lord spoke to her, but then it says in verse 13 that the Lord spoke to her. What do we do with this? One commentator, Victor Hamilton, says, The angel of Yahweh is a visible manifestation, either in human form or in fiery form, of Yahweh that is essentially indistinguishable from Yahweh himself. The angel of Yahweh is more a representation of God than a representative of God. That's very important because the Hebrew word for angel 
just means messenger. And so what he's saying is that, yes, there is this kind of messenger dynamic, but more than being a representative of God, he is a a representation of God. Many throughout church history have interpreted this as a Christophany. Maybe you have heard that word before. Maybe you have not. It just simply means an appearance of Christ. That's all it means. A Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Word of God. Before he became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he revealed himself as the Word of God to the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And you can find all kinds of instances where Christ is understood to be active in the Old Testament. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Jesus speaks when he comes on the scene as though he walked with these men. And when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, there you have these Old Testament figures who appear. Like, oh yeah, we know you. Of course they knew him because he was the one who spoke with them. He was the one who revealed himself to them. And he is the one here before he became incarnate, appearing as a man in human form, God himself speaking for God as the eternal word of God to this woman, Hagar. And I think this is a really nice preparation for Advent. Because when we come next week to look at John chapter 1, we're going to begin with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And even at the very beginning of John, you get this, this very kind of strange language. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Distinction. The word was God. Unity. So we, we already have a theology there of, of God somehow being, being plural in his persons. That there's a, a trinity of persons. And that's why God's love. Because eternally existing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in love for one another. So we have already this notion of distinction yet sameness. And the angel of the Lord himself even gives us this in his appearances Throughout the Old Testament. It's fascinating how all of this fits together. So he's the Lord. We see three things here on the part of the Lord. He finds her. This language conveys the idea of finding by searching. So we get this in Deuteronomy 32.10. So he finds her. She doesn't find him. He finds her. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 32.10. He found him, speaking of Israel... He found him in a desert, in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. That's Israel as a nation. That's how God came to Israel. And that's the same idea that we have here. Hagar is just all alone, and God searches her out. He doesn't need to search. He knows, but the language is intimate. He searches her out. He finds her. He lays hold of her. He expresses concern for her state. The questions are meant to highlight her state. Hagar, where where are you coming from? Where are you going? You're leaving the house of Abram. You're going nowhere. And you are nowhere. He is helping her to see her state. 
showing his concern for her. And he knows her. So he finds her. He's concerned for her. And he knows her. He calls her by name and calls her the servant of Sarai. He knows her predicament. He knows what she's going through. He knows her anguish. He knows her mistreatment. He knows her name. I'll draw out some implications a little bit later. But for now, we need to see this about God. Very simply, we need to see this about God. In the midst of the brokenness. This is a picture of brokenness. I mean, if there is a household, we think about Melchizedek, maybe his household too. But if there is a household in which the worship of God is happening, if there is a household in which righteousness is prized, it's Abram's household. And even there, look at what we have. We have brokenness. We have a lack of peace. And in the midst of this brokenness, everyone here is depicted as sinful. Even Hagar, she's a rebel. She's run away. And plus, what was that prideful contempt that she had once she had that child? For Abram, she looked upon her mistress as a barren nothing, laughing at her. Showing contempt and disdain for her in her heart. There is no good person in this story. And in the midst of this brokenness, God is the one who sees us, knows us, and comes to us. He calls us by name. He takes the initiative. So let me just ask you this morning. As the Lord calls to you from his word, Will you respond to him? Will you say, yes, Lord, here I am. And obey him and do as he asks. Reach out and take hold of the one who calls to you this morning from his word. So what does he say to Hagar? That takes us to the second point, and that is the message. So look with me at verses 9 to 12. We've seen the meeting between this mysterious figure And Hagar, this Egyptian servant, now we see the message. Look at verses 9 to 12. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. As I said before, Ishmael means God hears. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So let me go back to a basic question. Who is Hagar? An Egyptian woman whom Sarai acquired as a servant during her time in Egypt? By the way, isn't it interesting? That connects these two weak moments in Abram's life, right? Remember chapter 12? Hagar would even be in the picture would not even be in the picture had Abram not done what he did back in chapter 12. And now we see this point in the life of Abram too. The two are connected. Do you see the the effects that our sin? Our sin is like a snowball. It starts rolling down the hill and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's always effects to it. You might think this morning that whatever sin it is that you're toying with, or involved with, that at any moment you could just cut it off and it'd be fine. You are storing up effects for yourself. You are storing up problems for your future life, for your children. Sin is serious. 
It is not to be played with. And I think we see that here with the connection. But she was acquired while in Egypt. What would have come of Hagar had she not been attached to this chosen and blessed family? And here we see God's sovereignty even over sin because had Hagar not been attached to this family, who knows what would have come of her? She would have lived a life certainly of idolatry and obscurity. She would never have known the true God. She would have continued to worship Ra and the other Egyptian gods. You see, in the form of crocodiles and hawks and so forth. Ridiculous idolatry. You can go to any museum in the world and see all of the ways that Egyptians worshipped, created things rather than the creator. Lost in that world of wicked idolatry, God plucked her out. Even in the midst of this seeming evil, slavery, he used that human evil, the human brokenness, Abram's sin, to sovereignly and providentially pluck her out of that world and bring her to belong to the household of Abram. Brought in connection to Abram, God's chosen and blessed man, she is also blessed. And this blessing in relation to Abram is at the heart of what she is about to hear from the angel of the Lord. This threefold message given to her by the angel. This is not the way of promise. This is not the way of promise. This is not a, a, a godly scenario. Yet, 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 God's faithfulness stands. And we need to hear this. Some of you this morning are wondering, I've messed up. I've just messed up. And maybe what I just said a second ago stung you. Because you realize that you have fallen on your face in your life. And you have done some stupid things. What you need to see is that the faithfulness of God towers even above that. God is more faithful than you have been stupid and sinful. He's more faithful than the most sinful sin is sinful. So look to him now. Don't dwell on the past. God can make it right. He can make it good. That should not be an encouragement to any one of us to perpetuate these things. For those who have fallen... There is much grace. So what is this threefold message? First, there is a command. Return and submit. God is not just sending this woman back to mistreatment. It's not, oh, poor Hagar. God is, I mean, she's finally gotten away. Who knows what Sarai's doing to her? And she's finally made an escape, man. She's made a break for it. She's away. She's going somewhere. And God tells her to go back. God, that's just not right. That's just not fair. Before you think that, remember that God is sending her back to the household of blessing. That's where she's being sent. She's nowhere right now. She's being sent back to the household of blessing and all of the provisions and protections that come with that, even if she has to put up with Sarai there. So first a command, second a promise, I will multiply your offspring. Innumerable they will be. The only woman in Genesis who receives this promise is this Egyptian Hagar. Doesn't that remind you of Matthew chapter 1? Where you get these women like Ruth mentioned and Tamar. The things that they were involved with, the, the, the life that they had lived before. God weaves them into his story. Same thing here. What a special thing this is. What a gift that God would make such promises to this woman. 
And then third, we see prophecy. So we have command, we have promise, we have prophecy. A future son. So the child in her, she knows now, will be a male. His name, God says, will be God hears. And she is told why. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. His future will be characterized by two things. Wildness and conflict. A wild donkey of a man. (laughs) That's a strange way to put it. I don't know if you've ever thought about somebody in those terms. But... He is called that. He will be a wild donkey of a man. That, that actually refers to a wild donkey, which is really more like a horse. And we find this mentioned in a couple of passages. Isaiah 32, 14 says, uh, For the place is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, telling us that wild donkeys live in the middle of nowhere. They live in this barren wasteland kind of place. We see the same thing in Jeremiah 14, 6. The wild donkeys stand on the bare heights. No green grass up there. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyes fail because there is no vegetation. So he will be like this. And his life will be one defined by conflict. Conflict with his kinsmen who will be his neighbors. He will always be in a state of uproar. He and his descendants. So what is Hagar's response? That brings us to our final point this morning, the memorial. We've seen the meeting, the message, and now finally we come to the memorial. It is noteworthy that Hagar did not say a word as she was receiving this threefold message. And it is interesting when you read the text because it it literally says, And the angel of the Lord said... And the angel of the Lord said, and the angel of the Lord said, it really is meant to be sort of a threefold message. You could have just said the angel of the Lord said the first time and then the other times. And he said again, and he also said, and he said, doesn't do that. It repeats that whole string of words. And the angel of the Lord said, there's been three distinct messages, a command, a promise and a prophecy. And she remains entirely quiet as the Lord speaks to her. But what is even more noteworthy is how she responds to what she hears. Her response is not focused on the content of the message. That's very interesting. I mean, the, the content dominates this set of verses. This passage, verses 7 to 16, is dominated by the message of the angel of the Lord. And what's interesting to us, we should ask ask a question here as we observe from the text. uh, Why is it that she's not concerned with these specific details that the angel of the Lord gives her? She's not. It is not, her response is not focused on her future offspring or the details of his future. She neither rejoices in the positive elements nor shows concern over the negative elements. Lord, can you explain to me a little bit more what this wild donkey of a man means? I mean, I don't want that for my son. She shows no interest in any of that. Instead, her focus is on the one who has spoken to her. She is in awe of him. Look at verses 13 to 16. As we finish up this morning, verses 13 to 16. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, 
Here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now, hopefully it becomes clearer why I have entitled this point, The Provider Confessed. Hagar confesses here her confidence in God. He is the God who sees her, who looks after her, who cares for her. He is her provider. I want you to think about this for a moment as we draw out the implications for us here this morning. Those of us who belong to Jesus, you say this morning, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Savior. God is my Father. I know Him. I know Him. And He knows me. If if that's you this morning, you know God. You are saved. You are a converted Christian. If God sees her, this Egyptian woman, and comes to her like this, how much more us who are in Christ, in the beloved, how much more those of us this morning who, for whom Christ died, whom Christ on the cross bled and died for, specifically to purchase us, He knew of you when he came to die. He died for you. One of the reasons I believe very specifically that Christ died for the elect. He he came specifically, not just to, to, to do a general kind of death that opens a door. No, no. He came and he purchased individual saints. He purchased his bride. He purchased his sheep. How much more you? You who are fearful. You who struggle, you who feel like God is far away. If this is God to Hagar, who is God to you, Christian? Calvin, I think, makes a a nice application when he says, essentially, that if the one who did not seek God receives this kind of treatment from God, Hagar's not praying I mean, there's no indication of that. Some commentators kind of go in that direction. That, I think that's just, just not, not right. That's not what's here. Hagar's just on her way. She's moving. She's not thinking about the Lord, it appears to me. She's just moving. She's not seeking God. God comes to her. And if the Lord does this for a woman who's not even a person, who's not even seeking him, who's not even trying to find him, how much more will God respond to those who pray to him persistently? Consider that. Our prayers matter. He hears them and he listens. He hears Ishmael. God hears your prayers. And he will respond in his own wisdom. Praise God he does it in his wisdom and not in our desires. Yes, because of Abram, she is blessed. That is true. Because of Abram, God comes to her. But I want you to see this. This is very important. It is not merely on behalf of Abram that God comes to Hagar. That is true. And that is, I think, the primary thing we have to see is that Hagar receives this from the Lord and she's told to go back and she receives all this blessing because she has in her womb an offspring of Abram, the blessed man, the man to whom God came 
with all these promises. But there's more than that. Remember verse 11? Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. She cares. God cares for Hagar. He doesn't just care for Abram and Abram's child. He cares for Hagar. This tells us, I think, that the Lord cares about human hurting wherever it may be found. That's the Lord. God does not delight in human suffering. We see suffering all over the world, and we might be tempted to think that God is just nowhere to be found, that he doesn't care, or that he is is doing this afflicting even. We know that the wrath of God abides on man. We know that God disciplines his children. We know that God works all things for good. We know we live in a fallen world. There's all kinds of ways that philosophers and theologians have, have come at the question of human suffering. And that's a, that's a very large topic. But what we know just from this little story couched in Genesis 16 is that God sees the afflictions of people. Even people who are not directly in his line of redemptive purposes as we see with Abram. God cares for this woman, Hagar. He cares even about the wicked, we would say. Have you ever heard this verse, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven? As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. A church that does not preach hell, a preacher who does not preach hell, is unfaithful to God. Yet, yet, God has no pleasure in sinners in hell. He has no pleasure in the drawing of the last breath of a child of Adam. God hates death. And that's why he put it on his son. So that it could be defeated for those who look to him. I have summed up these final verses under the idea of memorial. There's a threefold naming here. As I thought about these verses, the thing that's interesting is there's three, three names are given. God is given a name. This well is given a name. And then, of course, the actual naming of Ishmael occurs in these verses. So it seems to me what we have here is a, a memorial or, or a set of memorials to God's faithfulness, to his character, to what he has done. God is named, you are a God of seeing. The well is named, the well of the living one who sees me. And Ishmael is named, God hears. This is perceptive language. God is omniscient. He is always present. He sees, he hears, he knows everything. And he knows you're suffering this morning. And he cares deeply about you. This event is to be remembered. Hagar will remember it. But even more, we have to see this as we close. Even more, it is Abram and Sarai who must remember it. Remember, God's dealing with Abram and Sarai is specific. Hagar's roped into this and God is good to her. But she's roped into what this larger thing that's going on. God wants Abram and Sarai to get the point that God sees and God hears. It is Abram and Sarai who must remember it. At the end of the passage, we see that Abram does the naming. That means that Hagar has come back. And she has told him. Who knows if Sarai was present? Hagar's told him, God appeared to me. Let me tell you what he said. He showed me care. 
and we must name this son Ishmael. Now, at this point, you get the impression from Abram so far that he would just say, oh, I'm not naming him that. I'm naming him what I want to name him. Haven't I just tossed you back over to Sarai? It's terrible. That's not what he does. He names the child what Hagar says the child's name must be. Hagar is received back into the house. She relays this message and Abram is forced to consider the God who first came to him in Genesis 12 as the God who sees and the God who hears. And Sarai must deal with this boy who will grow up whose name is God hears. And she must consider the fact that in her barrenness, she did not cry out to the God who hears. But looking forward, she is reminded that that is her only recourse to call out to the God who hears and he will answer. He will keep his promises. He sees and he hears. And it is on this basis that they must live, that they must walk by faith. And it's on this basis this morning. We can't see God. None of us have seen God. But having not seen him, we love him because his spirit is in us. If you don't trust in God, it's because you can't do that on your own. You need the Holy Spirit of God to come inside of you and give you supernatural vision. Don't wait for a dream while you're sleeping. Don't wait for a vision. The Spirit of God will transform a human heart so that that person is so convinced in the truthfulness of God's word, so convinced in the truthfulness of God's existence and in his plan of salvation through Christ and in the death and resurrection of Christ that he or she gives up everything to follow him. To lay hold of that treasure, even if it means being burned alive, crucified upside down, skinned to death, Or fed to wild animals. Only a person with the life of God in his or her heart can do such things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for your goodness. For your mercy. We thank you that you see us in our affliction. Father, we thank you that you hear and you see. God, we are all guilty of not believing that from day to day. We fail to trust you as we should. Forgive us, Father. We pray that we would see ourselves as you see us and that we would read your word because it tells us who we are. God, we pray that we would meditate on these glorious descriptors of our identity. And in realizing who we are in Christ, that we would trust you, that we would live fearlessly for your glory and not our own glory. That we would cast aside all idols and all hopes of earthly comfort and grandeur and riches. And that we would lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Give us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.